Well, good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. I'm sitting here at Harvest Chapel in a uh, beautiful outdoors, about 55 degrees, looking out at the trees. I am in Abbottstown, Pennsylvania, where we're this weekend doing a marriage conference. Tracy and I will be here this weekend uh, with some dear friends from all over the place who are piling in here to do this uh, marriage conference weekend. And uh, then Sunday morning I'll be speaking here. So by the time you hear this, I'll already be speaking at Harvest Chapel. If you happen to be anywhere in Pennsylvania, wish you were here. And uh, hopefully wherever you are, you're worshiping the Lord with your own community and your own family, your own own tribe of people who you love to hang out with. It's amazing to have people in your life that you call community and uh, that you can worship Christ together with. I love being here with Don and Lori Wallabaugh. We've become some of the best friends we've we've ever known. Just such such amazing people who have uh, done so much to launch history shapers out into the world to uh, to change the course of history for for many many people. Uh, you know, there's not too many folks out there that I would call spiritual fathers, but Don and Lori are a good spiritual father and mother to a lot, a lot of people. Uh, very empowering, and uh, so hopefully you have people like that in your life uh, that encourage you and empower you. Well, listen, uh, today I got a special uh, broadcast for you. It's a message actually you've heard. It's the message on the prodigal son that you might have heard in the previous podcast, but this is done live at a barn revival. You might have heard me talk about the barn revivals. These are meetings that my dad did in farms all over the Midwest back in the 80s and 90s when when he was here with us. And uh, in those meetings, thousands of people came to know Jesus in, uh, in a very personal and a real way. People who would have never darkened the door of a church came to Christ in a barn. Dad always said it was a great place to be barn again. And, you know, he was a he was a dad of dads. He, he had dad jokes for days. Uh, this barn revival at the Paul Furman farm was really special and unique. We've kept the barn revivals up for many, many years. And I say we, it's the country church in Ruthen, Minnesota, along with other churches in the area and farmers that have really kept a vision for this. They've kept the vision up for this uh, barn revival uh, idea uh, since the 80s. And, and yet every year it seems to be nostalgic. But this year was really, really powerful. Uh, the barn was filled, uh, filled with people who just had a hunger for the things of God on a deep level. And uh, and so on this night, it felt like this was the appropriate word to give. So I want to invite you into a barn revival experience to join uh, a crowd of people who pile into a, a barn out on a farmer's land to hear the gospel. So let's jump into it. There's a story in the scripture, the prodigal son. Jesus is going to tell this story. We don't know if there was really a a father with two sons, but Jesus is going to give us an allegory, a metaphor, a parable. It's, it's it's it's, it's, It's told in a certain way that is meant to actually get a certain response. It goes like this. A certain man had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. In other words, give me my inheritance now. And the father divided to them his living. Not many days after that, the younger son took his journey, went to a far country, and there he wasted the entire fortune, all of his substance. The Bible says it was riotous living, many translations. 
while he was in that country, a great famine arose and he began to be in want. And he finds himself without any friends, finds himself without any money left. And now he's in the hog pen. The Bible says that, that he would have filled himself with what the hogs were eating. So he's fighting pigs for food and nobody would give anything to him. He's completely tanked every relationship in his life and he squandered his entire inheritance. And so he says in his heart, this is what he says, ah, I'll go home to my dad. But not as a son, maybe he'll take me back as one of his hired servants. He has bread enough to spare and I'm perishing with hunger. I'll go home, I'll rise and go to my father. I'll say, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. And he's coming up with a speech, by the way. It's not a speech so much that's coming from a place of being even sorry. This is a speech that's coming from a place of desperation. He has no other choice. I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. That's what he's going to beg. He's going to beg just for a job because he doesn't feel worthy to be called a son. Why? Because of what he's done. And what has he done? Well, he did a stupid thing. He asked for an inheritance. When do you get an inheritance? When somebody dies. So if you go to your living parent and say, give me my inheritance now, you might as well be walking up to your father and saying, you know, it'd be really convenient for me if you were dead. How dishonoring is that? And you know, here's the crazy part about it. The Bible never says, and this is Jesus telling the story. He is, he is exposing to us what the father's actually like, okay? He's looking at the Jews who had an idea of what God was like, and he's going to tell them what God is really like. And so what he says is when the son asks for the inheritance, the father gives it freely, just because he asked. The father doesn't lecture the son. The father doesn't, knowing full well that the son is gonna go out and waste the whole thing, he gives it anyway. And if you feel, I don't know if you feel it, but I think the way that Jesus tells the story is actually meant to provoke some judgment against the father. Like that's bad parenting. Like you should have, you should have taught this kid better. What's your problem, dad? Like that you would even do such a thing. Matter of fact, I doubt there's any parent in here who would see the foolishness in a young, young man young, in, in your own home who says, give me my inheritance now knowing he's going to go out and waste it. I doubt there's any parent in here who would actually give it. But what Jesus portrays the father doing here is actually going ahead and giving the son what he's requested. He gives both sons actually their inheritance, believe it or not. The Bible says he divided to them. And so what ends up happening? The son ends up losing it all. Sure, the father knew it was going to happen. Why? Because the father is standing on the porch and he's watching the horizon. So the son comes out of the hog pen, he rises, he's gonna to go to his father. And the Bible says, while he was yet a great way off, the father saw him coming. And I love the way that Jesus tells this story because it, it pictures a father who, even though the son tried not to be a son, even though the son got completely out of alignment, there is nothing of his spirit that's in charge here. He is completely flesh driven, 100%. And even though the son tries not to be a son, the father never stops being a father. And not only that, is it doesn't seem to matter how far the son has gone, the father knows who the son is, and he's never gonna forget. And when the son is coming home, says, well, he's yet a great way off, the father saw him coming, 
and the father ran. Oh, I love that story. Now, this has been mined in sermons for years and preached a ton, so you've probably heard this before, but when a father of a kibbutz, that would be a, a family farm in Israel, when a father who, who's got robes on that talks about, speaks of who he is to the house, he's the head of the house, he's the guy in charge. If somebody's running, he's telling somebody else to run, but he's not going to be the one to do it. Because in order for him to run, he's got to hike that robe up and he's got to just take off on a sprint. It's not dignified. You're running either to get away from danger or to kill somebody. But it's a passion over dignity exercise here. The Bible says the father ran. Jesus tells the story of the father running. If you're, if you're a Jew and you're listening to this story, you're thinking, this dad should have never given that wealth away. And now why is the dad running? What is he about to do? And Jesus says that father ran. And before the kid can even get his repentant speech out of his mouth, the father has tackled him. He's hugging him. He's kissing him. And he hollers to the servants and says, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, put a robe on him. So the father doesn't have to go looking for these things. He's had them ready. They represent sonship. They represent authority in the house. And so the son doesn't even have a chance. It's like his repentance speech comes, but it comes after the father is already determined to restore him. Father's looking for one thing, and that's the slightest turn of the son back toward home. That's all. Just the slightest turn. It's like, can I just catch your eye? And even if it's on the horizon, even if you have to go through the hog pen to get there, he's turning back towards home. The father has no intention of controlling him. All he wants to do is restore him. That's it. And so the father restores him, says, strike up the band. We're going to have a party. We're going to kill the fatted calf. We're going to eat, drink, and be merry because this is my son. His dad is alive again. He's lost and he's found. Oh, wow. They begin to be merry. And then, and then you have son number two. Jesus starts the story out by saying a certain man had two sons. And now we discover why he included the second son in the story. Because the story is actually not even so much about the first son. It's about the second. Why do we know this? Because in, in Jewish storytelling, you finish the story on the point. You end the story on the point, and the story ends with the father having a conversation with the older son. The older son hears the party music going on. He says to his servant, what's going on? He says, so your brother's come home. And uh, dad's striked up. He's got the party going. There's music and dancing, and it's great. And the older brother goes, no, it's not. He goes and grabs his dad says, I want to talk to you. Now, in the older brother's mind, listen to this. He's been faithful in the house. He hasn't done anything wrong. He hasn't squandered dad's inheritance. He's done everything dad has asked him to do, and he's done it all right. In his mind, he's perfect. But somehow, dad doesn't seem to know this. So the older son's going to make sure that the father knows. The older son says, all these years I've worked for you, slaved for you, done everything you asked me to do. Not one time did you ever even kill so much as a goat so that I could have a party with my friends. But this, 
your son. He doesn't say my brother. He says your son. This your son went out and he took the entire inheritance. And, and this is the way Jesus is telling the story. Says he wasted it on prostitutes. Now this is an interesting part to me. I mean, it's like the worst thing you could possibly do with an inheritance in order to waste it. And, and that's the way Jesus tells the story. So what you have here is a picture of the father celebrating this kid in spite of the worst thing he could possibly do, wasting the inheritance. But here's my question. How did the older brother know that? He was in a far country, wasn't he? It tells me that the older brother didn't go out to rescue his younger brother, but he did go out to observe him. Or at least he sent somebody to do it because he certainly knew what he was up to. And he wasn't observing for the purpose of rescuing him or challenging him to come home. He was observing to make a point. This kid doesn't deserve anything. If he ever even tries to come home, I'm going to be angry. And he is. And so now, the older, older brother says, you've never done any of this for me. And now Jesus says a line here. Puts a line in the father's mouth in this story that ought to make every child of God stop. And really take heart to what mom just said a little while ago. Jesus looks at the, uh, has the father look at the older son and say, son, all that is mine is yours. Everything that I have is yours. You're always with me. It's right that we do this because he was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. The father doesn't back down. He doesn't actually condemn the older brother just as he never condemns the younger brother either. But he's teaching them both an important lesson. See, for the younger brother, he learned some things perhaps in the hog pen that he may have never learned in the house. And the father just wants that young son to at least turn his attention to come back toward home. And the older brother, though, he doesn't seem to know what he has access to in the house. And this is the sad part of the story. If the older brother had just gone to dad and said, Dad, can, can I have a party? I mean, for no real reason other than I just want to, the dad would have been like, yes! Great. Dad, can you and I spend some time together? Dad, yes, that'd be great. Maybe the father had tried and the older brother wasn't interested. Here's the crazy part of the story. Jesus portrays the father running to meet the son. How come the older brother wasn't with him? How come the older brother wasn't watching the horizon with dad? How come the older brother let the father run alone by himself? The older brother should have been the one along with dad. Give me the ring, give me the robe. Let's go get him, dad. He's back, he's back. And the reality is it didn't matter whether he was in the house or in the hog pen, neither brother knew the heart of the father. The father consistently makes himself accessible. Doesn't force his will on his sons. Gives them all the freedom, more freedom than they even deserve. Doesn't offer any condemnation for either journey. But what he does encourage is he wants these two sons to celebrate each other. Not only that, he wants to celebrate with them. See, this story has all kinds of questions going through my head when I think about it. 
Like what happened when the uh, party was over? I mean, the Bible doesn't say, but I think we can, I think we can probably guess, and I bet our guesses would be right. Who would make it easy for him to be in the house? Dad. That young son, every time he sees his father, I think his father would look at him and go, I'm so glad you're home, son. But who would make it hard for him to be in the house? Everybody else. Everybody else, especially the ones who did it all right. And don't you know that their offense against that younger son would probably come out when the father wasn't watching or when the father wasn't looking. I, I imagine the older brother would probably go up to the younger son and say something like this. This sounds like something the older brother would say. He'd say, you know, dad was really hurt by what you did. I mean, I know he's really celebrating you now, but you don't understand. We had to put up with him while you were gone. And he stood there on the porch day after day after day, watching the horizon, knowing you're out there doing what you're doing. And not only that, not only was he really hurt, I mean, he, I mean he's, he's, he's angry with you. He's, I mean, he might act happy and he might act gracious, but internally, you gotta believe me, he is really, really mad at you. Not only that, but I think the thing you need to do is to pay back the inheritance. The younger son's probably like, I, I, don't, I don't think I could ever do that in a lifetime. Well, then what good is it for you to even be here? I imagine it would be the older brother, some of the others in the house, that would make the younger son actually question the grace of the father. And be the idea that every time the father tries to be gracious to the younger son because of his interaction with the older brother, the younger son's probably wondering, is dad really secretly mad at me? Are you really, dad, are we okay? Are you good? And the father's like, you're home. That's all I wanted. I just wanted you to be, be safe. I just wanted you to be with me. Yeah, but, but I hear you're really angry at me. I, I hear and what I see in this story is Jesus is looking at older brothers and he's saying, this is what older brothers who do it all right have a tendency to do. And that is to misrepresent the heart of the father, becoming offended when the prodigals come home, making it so hard for them to stay home that when they finally can't stand it anymore and they leave, the older brothers end up going, I knew it. See, their heart really wasn't in it. They really weren't one of us. I want you to feel this tonight because I feel like in this room, there's two groups of people. There are prodigals, but there are also others who are in the house and have done it all right. And this is a story where Jesus looks at the entire church and goes, I'm just going to hold up a mirror and I just want to show you, you. This is what it can look like. And this is what, this is what often happens. Somebody goes out and wastes their life. And then they try to come home. Try to come home to the heart of the father. And all they have to do is run into one older brother. One older, older sibling who says, God's really mad at you. You know, that really wasn't cool. I mean, I know he's gracious. Seems all gracious now, but just wait. I'm telling you, any moment he's going to drop the hammer on you. Next thing you know, prodigals came home to the heart of the father and felt the love of the father suddenly begin to question his goodness, question his grace. Stop trusting the brothers and sisters around them. What happens? We have, as older brothers, and I've done this, made it really hard for prodigals not just to come home, but to stay home. See, the message is not just to prodigals out there to repent. 
The message is to the older brothers because the crazy thing about the story is it's the older brother that never goes in the house to join the party. Matter of fact, he's the only one who doesn't join the party. Maybe that's the biggest tragedy of it all. It's the father just wants his kids back home. And the one who stayed home and did it all right developed such a pride, self-righteous arrogance in his own heart that he cannot stand when the father is more gracious than he thinks he should be. Quiet here. I just, I've never actually preached this message out loud before. I did it on podcast, sort of. But I felt like tonight, I felt like the Lord was saying, Bill, I want you to challenge the prodigals and the brothers and sisters in the house. If I want to send a revival into this region and prodigals are going to come flooding back home to the heart of the Father, there's got to be elder brothers and elder sisters in the house who will represent the Father's heart well. Who will affirm and tell these prodigals, listen, I don't care what you've done, I don't care where you've been. That love the Father is showing you, it's real, it's genuine, it's authentic. He's not pulling your leg here. And he's not secretly just wanting to drop the hammer on you. He is really that good. And you are really that restored. Because listen, internally, the people that have the hardest time forgiving themselves are the ones that have been out in the hog pen, have made a mess of their life, and everybody else knows it. And the question I have is, have we made it hard for them to come home? And when they do, have we made it hard to stay? Some of you may be thinking of prodigals who stumbled back, back into the house and aren't there anymore. Don't let the father run alone to go get him. You go get him. You go get him. When Jesus died on the cross, something amazing happened. Peter tells us this, that Jesus, when he dies on the cross, Peter's letters, Peter's two epistles, tell us something that's baffled theologians for years. And that is that he descended into hell to take the keys of death and hell and to preach the gospel to the souls of people in prison. People in prison, the Bible says, who were there from the time of Noah's flood. Noah's generation, by the way, is the only generation of human beings that ever made God go, yeah, we got to start over. They were that bad and that wicked. And Peter says, Jesus went down there to preach the gospel to them. What is he doing? Leaving them there? I don't think so. Why? Because he's got the keys. And Luke 4.18 says he came to set captives free. It's called prison. He didn't go down there to leave them there and just tell them what he did. He went down there to empty something out. Why? Because he's got the keys. And he opens prison doors and he sets captives free. That's what he does. And that might freak your theology out a little bit, but stop and think about this with me. That tells me that God is willing to go to the darkest lengths, the deepest, darkest places to find every single one of you. See, there's one path to the Father, one path to God, and its name is Jesus Christ. One path, one way. Nobody comes to God but by Jesus Christ. But Jesus will travel down any road to find you. And what Peter tells us is he'll even go to hell. And the question I have is if I'm going to be like Christ, This is the challenge that comes to me. If I'm going to be like Christ, 
then what is the hell that I'm willing to step into right now to go and find brothers and sisters, sons, daughters, who the Father wants home? But he's commissioned you and I to represent his heart. In John 17, 4 and 6, Jesus says, says, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do by glorifying your name here on the earth. Verse 6, he says, I've represented you. In other words, I put you on display. I've showed everybody what you're like. In John 20, Jesus says, as the Father sent me, I send you. To do what? To represent him. To show the world what he's like. And if this world isn't beating the doors of the church down, maybe it's not their fault. I'm just saying, if we're going to challenge, I, I know some of you here tonight going, Bill, you're only supposed to challenge the sinners. I'm asking God, what's the answer for revival in this country? And I feel like the Lord is saying, we've got to get the house right. Judgment begins in the house of God. In other words, it starts with, with a person who's willing to literally say, God, let me so represent your heart that every prodigal that comes home, I am, I am exaggerating your goodness to them. I don't want them to question your grace, your love, your goodness for a moment, your ability to reach in and, and realign them. And even if they get out of line 40, 50, 60 times a day, his forgiveness is stronger, faster, bigger. His righteousness is stronger, faster, bigger. His grace is stronger, faster, bigger than any of your self-efforts. When it comes down to it, listen, I know some of you are like, well, I've done it all right my whole life. I've been in church my whole life. Yeah, I've, I've stuck around my whole life. I've been, I've been so, so good, I've never even needed to repent for anything. You know, I, I was born saved. I don't know, so maybe some of you think that. The reality is your infant baptism does not save you. Your confirmation did not save you. Your CCD classes do not save you. Your church attendance doesn't save you. Your church membership doesn't save you. Only one can save you. His name is Jesus Christ. And he saves single-handedly. So I felt tonight, I said, Lord, what do you want me to say? I felt like the Lord said, challenge the prodigals and challenge the older brothers too. So want to send a revival to this nation. God wants to revive this nation. But he's not going to send prodigals home to a house filled with people that are going to misrepresent the heart of the Father. Amen. You hear what I just said there? We want people to come home. But God is not going to draw prodigals. He draws by his spirit. He's not going to draw prodigals home to a house filled with siblings that are going to misrepresent the heart of the Father. Every prodigal that comes home, we got to celebrate like if somebody got raised from the dead. We got to celebrate no matter what they've done, where they've been. We got to keep short accounts. Talking like this, talking like as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says, so far as they removed our transgressions from us. How amazing is that? What if they go out and they do it all over again? You got to keep a short account. Well, they come home. Next thing you know, what's happening? Next thing, we're, we're gauging them by what they do in the body, not realizing the power of the Spirit to change everything. Every human being is one encounter with the Holy Spirit away from a transformation that can touch the world. And there are prodigals out there that will be some of the most powerful ministers of the gospel you've ever seen. As long as elder brothers and elder sisters in the house, welcome them home and show them what the Father is really like. Stand with me tonight.
bow your heads with me for just a moment. You may have seen this diagram up here and you may have thought, oh my goodness, I recognize my problem. My life's been a mess because my flesh has been in charge. My body's been in charge. But I realize there's, there's a deeper part of me that's meant to be in charge. How do I get that spirit to come to the forefront? There's only one way you can do it. You can give your life to Jesus. And what he does is, the Bible says he fills you with his Holy Spirit. When you ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit, he does. He comes in and by his spirit, he changes you from the inside out. Something is, old things passed away, all things have become new. Something happens inside of you that changes everything. I sure wish you would all have been there at the Barn Revival, but this is the next best thing. So listen, if you heard this broadcast today, you recognize yourself as a prodigal, you recognize yourself as an elder brother, this is a moment to say, Lord, I'm coming home, coming home to your heart, to the favor of your face. To give your life to Christ in this moment is just simply to say yes to what Jesus Christ did on the cross, to believe it was for you and to put your faith and trust in him and him alone. Listen, if you want to write to us here, you can do that by writing to Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. The address, once again, Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. When's the last time you actually wrote a letter? We have a lot of people that do, and that's really, really encouraging and surprising to me. You can also listen again online at VanderbushMinistries.com or BillVanderbush.com. Subscribe on iTunes. If you'd like to support the broadcast, definitely go to VanderbushMinistries.com and click the Give button. Or go to BillVanderbush.com and click the Give page. Take care until next time. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.